Welcome back to another episode of the Worthy Pieces podcast. I'm your host, Rhonda Davis, and I am so excited about today's episode because I have my first guest interview, one of my very best friends, Tyson. Uh, He has so graciously allowed me to interview him, um, and the reason I chose him was because of his incredible story. Let me start by just giving a little bit of background about Tyson. Uh, So he used to be a member of the LDS Church and is currently no longer active. He served an LDS mission for two years um, right out of high school. And soon after coming home from the mission, he came out to his family as gay. He's had a lot of trauma. He's had a lot of heartbreak, a lot of disappointment with his family, who he is currently surrounded by in Colorado, living happily married. And I have asked him to share his incredible story because I believe that this topic is not only religious trauma, but coming out as a gay male is one that we see a lot, especially here in Utah. But a lot of people are afraid to share their story or talk about this from either side. So Tyson, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for coming on here and being a part of this. I'm so excited to get into the details of your life and let other people hear your story because I think it's just so incredible and I just am so excited you're here. So thank you. Yeah. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah. I love this opportunity to talk about this topic that is so heavy and very relatable for many, many people, especially in your circle and your line of work. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah. So, I mean, I was a Mormon missionary. And so to give you two years of a recap on what the the LDS church is all about in a very short summarized, uh, the fundamental principles of that church is they truly believe that they are the one and true church of God, of the deity that has been restored in these last times to save God's children, essentially, and to provide a pathway in what they call the straight and narrow back to heaven, to the ultimate paradise, to be with families forever and to be with God again and to become like God, essentially, is the (laughs) extremely watered down version, but that's what it is. And when you say you served a two-year mission, what is that for people that don't know? Sure. So um, LDS men are boys essentially are brought up truly pushed into becoming missionaries at the age of 19. However, now it's 18, but when I went, it was 19. And it's kind of something that's just absolutely ingrained in your brain that that is the ultimate sacrifice that you can give to God is to sacrifice two years of your life as a young adult and to teach the word of God, essentially to go out and knock on doors or talk to people. And you're going to market this church and bring more people into what they call the fold. But it's, it's not too dissimilar from what other, a lot of other religions have missionaries. It's not too dissimilar from that. However, this is in that it's young boys that are kind of stripped away from their family and their friends and their life as they know it and devoted completely to God in promoting what they call his kingdom on earth. And you did that how long ago? I, I was a missionary from 2009 to 2011. Okay. So a while ago. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. And then when did you end up leaving the church or no longer being active? That, that was a many year journey for me. It wasn't just a one day I woke up and decided, okay, I'm done. Um, I mean, in your introduction, you did mention that I went to BYU. I went to BYU, Idaho. And there is where I found somebody who I experienced kind of that sexual awakening or that blossom in at that school. Um, ultimately, he and I got kicked out of that university and we had to figure out life on our own. But through that and through trial and error and really figuring out who I was and what I wanted and kind of rediscovering myself, it's a whole process of, a, of I guess, creating my own path, my own journey that was absolutely different than what my family expected of me. And so that was a process that took many years, but the pinnacle of that, uh, when I actually stepped away completely, oh gosh, probably like 2015, 2014, 2015, something like that. Okay. But like you said, like you were already kind of questioning your spirituality and sexuality, like many years before that. Oh, my entire life. 
And it, like you said, stepping away from it, it's a process. Part of it, you were raised in the church, right? Like you were born into the religion. So part of your belief system and your core values come from the church and from your family dynamics because they are so active, correct? Perceptively, yes. Yeah. I mean, I thought that that was who I was. I thought that there was no life or there was no meaning outside of that life. Because I was, like you said, I was born into this. I was not ever given choices. Um, I do remember once in my youth that I made the choice that I was not going to go to church one Sunday. And that was as if I had done drugs Mm. and my parents had found out I had been expelled from the school. Like that's the, that that's of equal caliber in my family's eyes. And the punishment was equal to that as well. Right. So, I mean, it's not so much of choice. It's what's expected of you. Right. Yeah. Are you going to say something? Well, I mean, it's, you hesitated. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> and just that it's, it's fascinating to me because there's a lot of backlash from people within the church when they get called a cult and they say, we are not a cult, but having lived through that and then going through the steps, the process, the journey to step away from it, from the church, it, very much is because this organization tells you how to wake up in the morning, how to structure your day, how to eat your meals, how to go to bed at night, what to do with your family on various days of the week, what is expected, lesson plans within your family, the role of the parents, which is very different between your mother and your father, and the, st- the structure in, in who you listen to, how you obey, how you respond to your parents, this idea of an eternal family and what that structure is being created on earth that will continue on into the eternities is so fundamental that when you step away from that, you're not just stepping away from a church, you're stepping away from your identity. Mm-hmm. You're stepping away from your process of thinking, of believing, how you speak, how you act, really how you process your cognitive development. Yeah. It's all so intertwined. And so it's not just a one-step thing, but it's a, it's, I keep saying journey, but really that's what it is. It's, it's a fight. It's a struggle. Yeah. And a lot of people don't make it. And I think that it is like how you worded it as far as like an, almost an identity crisis explains kind of a lot of it, because again, coming back to you being gay also, like you not only are questioning your belief system, questioning who you are, what you all know, figuring out who you are and figuring out what this new kind of piece or part of you looks like. And really when it goes against really an entire family and an entire church, right? There's a lot of pressure and that pressure I think is a big reason why people don't survive, right? Because it's so much of who they are and what they know that stepping away or walking away, it leaves them almost with nothing, almost to rebuild everything they already knew. Yeah, thousand percent. So when you say that you, like, it was a process for you, what was it like when you were, like, it sounds like pretty young growing up in the religion? Uh, It's like the, the best way I can describe this is like, when you look at domestic abuse, and I mean, I very much acknowledge that you're the professional in this conversation, <laughs> but when you, when you view somebody that's in domestic abuse and they continue to stay with their partner and they continue to live through that and on the outside, you just pull your hair out and you go, why can't you see that? Hmm. Why are you staying in this? Why do you continue to fight to be part of something that is so broken? Yeah. And that was me at 12 years old, sitting in a pew at church and hearing the lessons taught about temples, about marriage, about a man and a woman and the power, the ceiling power of eternity that these families can be together forever. If you follow X, Y, and Z, I felt like I was purple in a sea of red. Hmm. And I knew I felt so uncomfortable all the time. And I remember every step in my quote unquote manhood journey, or they call it the priesthood, every step that I would take in that, meaning at 12 years old, when I was first ordained a deacon, and then, uh, and then as you grow up, you move up into different ranks and different uh, quorums is what they call it. But I remember as each one of those progressed and I would sit there and I'd get interviewed by the bishop and then 
I just felt so gross because mm-hmm. I didn't belong. But yet I would lie through my teeth and I would say, this is who I am and I am devout and I am worthy and I you know, I am all these things because that's what I thought I had to be, but I wasn't. And so, but then I would continue on and I would grow in, in that priesthood rank. Eventually I would go through the temple. Eventually I would serve a mission and all of that now looking back was so destructive Hmm. every step. And I wish more than anything that at 12 years old or 11 years old, that somebody would have come and just put their arm around me and say, you don't have to do this and it's okay. And I love you. And that's not really like expected in the church, right? Between like family members, the elders, everyone, part of the church, including like the bishop, especially like you have that pressure to do what you're supposed to go on a mission, prove yourself worthy. And if you don't, there's a giant spotlight on you. Yeah. So at the time of 12 that you were questioning everything, kind of knowing intuitively that it was like wrong and it goes against your core. Did you know already that you were gay and that you were questioning sexuality? Mm, did I know I was gay? No, I didn't have the vocabulary for that. Right. I didn't, I didn't know. All I knew was that I had an uncle that's gay and he and his life partner, um, they've been together for 25 years. And I remember being little and just hearing the jokes behind his back and the comments Mm. and the backstabbing and, but yet to his face, how much everyone loves him. And that terrified the hell out of me. Because mm-hmm. I did not want to be that in everything I was. I did not want to be that. Yeah. I knew I was different. I wasn't that. I was mm-hmm. obviously, but I didn't know how to express that. I do remember, I mean, there's a problem in, in, again, acknowledging that you're the professional here, but I do truly believe that there are steps that is very healthy in someone's sexual understanding or sexual awakening, if you will. Hence why people date, why there are school dances, why people have their first kiss, why they yeah. hold hands, why they go to the movie. You know, all of that is to understand how to date or how to fall in love, how to find that partner. But that didn't happen to me until I was 21 years old. Mm. Whereas heterosexuals get to have that experience in, in a heteronormative society, they get to have that experience when they're in their early teens, but I never did. And so, or I would try to date, I had quote unquote girlfriends in high school, but it just never, I never, I would always have an excuse why I wouldn't kiss her (laughs) or I didn't want to hold her hand or I didn't want to make out because I, it just never felt right. But I never, I never had the vocabulary to be able to express that or to understand it myself. Right. Okay. So from like age 12, you had another, like what, five, six years before you actually went on a mission, did what you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you went on your mission at like going on your mission and serving those two years and being really isolated. Right. Because going on a mission, you can't really talk to friends. You're not supposed to have contact with family. And so you're super isolated with like speaking the church and preaching the church. What at that point, what was your mental health like? I have, What's actually really interesting, and I I had this out because I knew we were going to talk about it. This is my missionary journal. And uh, the journal that, that missionaries have is so their only outlet to express anything. And oftentimes it actually gets degraded and that your companions and or visiting missionaries will sneak through your journal often. But I was very vocal this is the only place in my life where I was, where I ever documented what my journey was like being okay. gay. And so I have excerpts in this journal that I go back even now and I'll read and it just absolutely tears me apart because I had the such potential in my, in my early adulthood that I completely suppressed for this religion. And I talk about, Like I talk about in here, just the pain. And I talk about even suicide. I talk about that. If I can't make it work with a woman, then I have nothing left and I might as well just die because that's how important salvation was to me. That's how important this, this idea of an eternal family was to me that I felt it was better just to kill myself. But this was my, this is the, my journey, I guess my mission if I could go back, I would never have done it. However, looking back and reading these excerpts here, just the amount of pain that missionary Tyson went through in trying to cope with who I, who I 
inherently knew I was, but yet with what was expected of me were two totally different things. And that's hard. That's a hard journey to go through because you, it's an identity crisis in that you don't know how you belong in this ecosystem that you are so ingrained in and intertwined in. When you did it all alone, right? Like being on your mission, it wasn't like you could go home to your companion and talk about your sexuality or talk about your questions. You yeah, there's no way. In a journal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you yeah, literally like wrote it in a journal, kept it to yourself and just suppressed those feelings. And that's exactly the point is that it was a completely solo and alone journey that um, I don't ever wish upon anybody. Yeah. Because that's the the loneliest I've ever been in my life. Did you have, like, was there any points at any companion or people that you met along the way that like you could use support for that? Uh, Absolutely not. Because if, if that had ever come to the surface, I absolutely would have been sent home. It's like, I mean, think about like these super patriotic families that have kids that they're like so expected to go serve in the military, right? And then if they go to the military and they had a dishonorable discharge, like that is just the ultimate no-no, right? Yeah. That's exactly the same thing. Had I ever opened up and told anybody, I instantly would have been sent home and I would have had just this huge red, red A right on my shirt. Yeah. Going back to church and seeing these people again before I completed those two years. Yeah. And at that point, if that were to happen, like your, your family would have the shame of not only you fulfilling the mission, but also the shame of their son being gay. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, because because having this perfect family, I want to say perfect family, I have to put that in quotations. And that's a conversation I have constantly with my parents. But the, the perception of, perf- of perfection is like that is so especially because my dad was my bishop when I was on my mission. Oh, wow. So he was my ecclesiastical leader. And having that that idealized perfection was so important in our family because we were yeah. looked at as the pinnacle within this congregation. Yeah. And you have siblings too, right? So at this point, like you being the youngest sibling and the expectations of like all of your older siblings that you kind of had to follow in their footsteps. Oh yeah. All three of my siblings are married in the temple. Yeah. Okay. And I'm the the youngest. So you serve your mission, you come Mm -hmm. home and you're age 21, right? Yes. So you serve 19 to 21 at that point. Like mm-hmm. you said, you kind of miss a big ch- like chunk of your adolescence. 21, you came home and went to school at BYU. Yeah, I actually had a full ride scholarship to go um, study theater production, theater management in Indiana at the University of Evansville. And that was something that I had worked very, very hard before my mission and was actually planning to go there instead of my mission. I felt like that was my outlet. I was like, yeah, I found the light at the end of the tunnel. I'm leaving. I'm getting the heck out of Colorado. I'm leaving my family. This is it. And then I, when I sat my parents down and told them my mom lost it, she wow. just, I've never felt such disappointment. And so that's why I went on a mission it was entirely for my mom. But then when I got home, luckily the university accepted me back. They took my deferral and that was it. I was like, this, this is it. I'm going to go to school and um, pursue my dreams in, in the performing arts. However, I was so scared to embrace my sexuality. I was so scared to embrace who I was because every day for two years, I woke up in the morning and I, not, I got on my knees and I prayed to this deity who I thoroughly, truly believed in at the time, asking to have this taken away from me not to be gay saying, I know I'm not supposed to be gay. I know you don't want me to be gay. Take this away from me. I'm doing everything you want me to do. I'm living this worthy life. I am dedicating everything I am and who I am to this mission. What more do you want from me? And it just never got taken away. And so I was so scared to go home as a gay man. And I dropped it. I dropped the scholarship. I dropped the acceptance. Mm -hmm. I dropped the university and I went to BYU Idaho because I felt like that was where God needed me to be. Because I felt like there was more I needed to give to this God to not be gay. Yeah. So that's why I went there. And ultimately, it was one of the best things that happened to me because that is where I found my first love. And that's where I finally understood what it meant to love and to be loved. And that was your first experience with a male, 
right? So like, what was that experience as you guys started to talk and, and communicate and like expand that sexuality farther? That was very scary. That was that. Oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> that situation, that part of my life. So what happened was I ended up getting into this class very last minute. It was my, and it was my second semester there. I mean, it was a, and I got into this class very last minute and I always sit in the front row because I'm just that kind of person. So I sat in the front row and this guy comes in a little bit late and the only spot available was right next to me. So he ends up coming in, sitting next to me. And then we just became friends through chatting, through doing schoolwork, doing things together, studying, et cetera. We just became friends and we became close. And he was the first person outside of a post mission that I came out to. He was the first okay. person I told. And which is huge because my best friend of almost my whole life was at school with me as well. And I never told her, unfortunately, okay. but I told him and I don't know why, but I felt like it was right. And uh, it comes to turn out that he had a gay or he has a gay brother. And so he kind of related with me on that, but still reserving himself. And then to make a very long story short, he did end up coming out to me as well. And, um, and we fell in love. But the problem is, is that we were both betrayed and kicked out of the university. Because at that point, being at BYU, also being a school part of the church, like you can't yeah. be in the same sex relationship. Not at all. Because that's still yeah. like the school still has the standards of the church where almost similar to like a mission, but obviously like you're not as isolated. Yeah, but BYU, Idaho is almost like it's it's more strict. It's more severe. It's more. um conservative than even BYU and Provo in that like they have there's curfew and they have um, like your apartment complex has to be dedicated specifically to a gender. Like there's no, there's no mixing. Mm -hmm. So like, um, and then like you have a church requirement, you have to go to church so much and you have to have a call. Like you have, like you have to fulfill all these things. You have to be worthy to be there. You have, you know what I mean? You have that structure. like you have that structure you need to so. follow. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So even at that point, like come home from mission, super isolated, going to school, figuring this out, me at the time, the love of your life. And at that still like at that standpoint, you still had to hide everything. Like hanging out, holding hands, the romantic oh, side yeah. of like what dating, what if you're a heterosexual couple gets to do in public, you and this person very much hidden, very much isolated again. Yeah. Very, very much private. Because if we were ever found out, which we were, then the consequences are pretty severe. Yeah. Which they were. School. So school found out. And that, if if I remember correctly, right, like that's how your parents and your family found out. That's correct. Like you didn't at any point get to sit down with your family and do it with your own autonomy, your own independence and sit down and, and have the conversation yourself. That's correct. The university outed me. And what were, like, what was the initial reaction to your family? Obviously, like, the church, the worthiness is one area, but as far as, like, you being attracted to the same-sex partner. So what happened was is that we got kicked out of school, and uh, he was from Washington State, and I was from Colorado, and we both didn't want to go to either state because it was so foreign to both of us. We didn't – I was so – I was so uncomfortable going to Washington and vice versa. So anyway – we decided Salt Lake City was a mutual ground. We both knew it. We both had been there. We both have connections. And so we both planted ourselves in Salt Lake City, um, actually living with my grandparents for some time. And uh, as a couple at this point, as like a, fully out, out of school, fully out, everyone knows. As no, not everyone. Well, not that we knew of. Not everyone <laughs> knew that we knew. <laughs> we did okay. not know that okay. we did not know that people knew. So, but we only had each other. And that was the thing is that we were so reliant on each other because everything that we knew and understand or understood was ripped away from us and was being ripped away from us. Yeah. And so we really only had each other. And so financially like that was what we had Mm -hmm. was each other. And so um, my parents were, they knew before I knew they knew and I, they flew me home by myself and I, I came home for a friend's, um, another friend's missionary return. And that was kind of their excuse why they got me to come home was because I had another friend anyway. So I came home and then we were driving home from his, from his talk. 
And my dad pulls into the church parking lot. And I was like, what the, it's not even really that close. And it's kind of out of the way from where my childhood house was. And I was kind of confused. And he said, we just need to go talk. And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he has the church keys, you know, we go into his office and cause every Bishop has their own kind of like interviewing office that they have in their churches. And so he pulls me in there, he and my mom. And basically he just said, I know what's going on. And I, I want you to tell me. Oh my gosh. So he didn't even take you home. No. He took you to the church to the church for extra pressure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Not even, not even in a place where I felt like I could just run away because that's all I wanted to do. Right. But I couldn't, I didn't yeah. have a car. I wasn't close to home. Uh, my siblings didn't know. So I, it's not like I could just call them, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah. So basically he just said, I need to know. And then my mom breaks down in tears and she runs out of the office. And then, then my dad closes the door behind her and he turns into a total Bishop. And he says, I need to know everything. And he starts asking me very personal, very in-depth questions that at the time I was like, where the hell have you been my entire life? And why are you so invested now? Hmm. Right. Why yeah. do you care? But now? you said like, he's coming in from like a Bishop standpoint, not a dad standpoint at this point. Yeah. And I see yeah. that switch in him was not terrifying, but it was incredibly, it was incredibly uncomfortable. Yeah. And then he ended up looking me right in the eye and he said, give me your temple recommend. Cause Which uh, is a yeah. big deal. Yeah. So every LDS person that's found worthy to enter the temples is given a kind of like a license essentially that they have to show upon entering the temple. And so I had that and that's holding on to that is a really big deal for LDS members. Mm -hmm. And so he took it from me and he shredded it in front of right you. in front of me yeah oh my gosh and um and were you devastated at this point or was that like relieving for you no it was devastation because I felt like I was such a disappointment yeah but yet I could not deny who I knew I was yeah and so you're kind of stuck and it's uh you can't really turn left or right because you can't go back to the church because then you drop who you are and you, and you lose yourself again. You put on your mask. I always talk about how this is my face, right? But my whole life prior to kind of this time in my life, I always wore a mask. I was in a masquerade always. Mm -hmm. And then that, that day was the time that I started to break pieces off of that mask. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for several years that I finally got rid of the last piece and I shattered it and I've never put a mask on since, but, um, yeah, having your own father sit there and tell you how unworthy you are is a painful experience. Yeah. It's like heartbreaking, but also pretty symbolic for you because I feel like that was a defining moment for you to finally become who you are and be confident in that person. It absolutely gave me a little bit of clarification, especially because my dad said, I, I don't want you with this person. And I said, I am going to be with this person because I have no other choice and because I'm in love. <laughs> mm, yeah. But I mean, it was, it was because my heart wanted to be with this person, but it was also so much more than that too. It was also a whole structure of this life that we were beginning mm -hmm. that I didn't know how I could survive on my own. Yeah. Yet, um, yet I was, head over heels and I was in love and you know those sparks that I had never experienced before were finally there at 21 years old and um I mean I was literally like a like a 13 year old you know in a middle school <laughs> crush is what it was yeah. essentially but but my dad ended up out offering to pay for my rent in Utah in Salt Lake he said mm -hmm. I will pay your rent for you so you don't have to live with this person and I said I won't do that because I'm not going to leave him on his own I'm not going to let him out to the streets to not have anything yeah. Because I didn't, because I didn't think his family would be receptive either. You know, I mean, his father, his father was an even higher level within the church than my dad was. Yeah. And so I knew it was going to be a difficult journey for him too. And I was like, I'm not, we're not going to abandon each other. And that, that was the moment that I lost my parents for a couple of years was when I rejected their offer yeah. for that. But, but it also was empowering, right? Because then you kind of got to begin your journey of living your life as you're, you wanted to. Yeah. It I mean, there was, was still like a lot said, of emotions, right? Yeah. But I mean, I think that like in that moment, it had to have been almost relieving, but also very heartbreaking for you. The first chip that I ever took off of, out of my mask. Yeah. So when was, at what point was like the final piece of that mask taken off? Uh, 
that came a few years later. And so between, okay. So between that moment and between my final straw, when I finally broke the mask and yeah. I was done was there was a lot that happened in between that. I was meeting with my, I, let me back up a little bit. I, in Utah, I was very actively involved in what they call a singles ward. So mm. the LDS church structure, they have, they're broken down in stakes and wards kind of think like school districts and schools. So a school would be like a ward and a school district is like a stake. And so in Utah, they have what's called singles wards and well, in other places too, not just Utah, but Utah mostly. And so it's just a, it's a ward or a congregation composed of entirely people that are not married and under a certain age. And so I was going to this ward and I was actually the ward organist and, um, <laughs> It was cute. It was adorable, whatever. But I was doing that. I thing actually I didn't meeting. know that about you. So that is kind of adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, um, I wasn't allowed to hold a church calling, mm, right? a calling meaning like an assignment within the church because I wasn't quote unquote worthy to do that, but I could have jobs or responsibilities that didn't require worthiness and being an organist yeah. is not one of those. And so I was able to do that. Anyway, so I was the ward organist for, for a time and I was meeting with my bishop and then um, through another story that's not worth diving into, I ended up getting called in to meet with one of the apostles, the Mormon apostles, which is a big deal because they're in like the executive of the Mormon church. And this person who I met with I, was someone who I had my whole life had high, high respect for. And Matt, um, I, and this was a, a big opportunity for me to sit down and meet with him and Anyway, so I was just meeting all of these high people within the church that were trying to pave this path or create this opportunity for me to stay in the church. And it just, as hard as I tried, it didn't work. And then um, I finally just said, you know what? I feel this mask, this unbearing weight of this mask that I want to take off. I want to destroy. And so I met with my stake president or basically like a su superintendent in a school to give you mm -hmm. reference. And I just said, I want to have what's called a church court. And a church court is where you meet with a stake president and their counselors. So that's like the executive in a stake. And then there are, um, there are 12 other men that sit in on this. So 15 people total. And you go to this meeting and they basically decide what your fate will be regarding your worthiness and the church. So I met with this guy and his name was President Featherstone, I believe. And we got to know each other and he was very nice. And I felt like, I was like, man, this is the, this is my guy. This guy is going to like help me figure out how to stay in this church and how to be gay and how to be in love. And, yeah. um, and he was really cool. And I never said that about a church leader before. And this guy was really cool. So then we get to the church court and my dad actually flew over to Utah to go to it with me. And I told everything, every detail, every experience, my journey, my life. And I just laid it all out on the table for these guys to decide yeah. if I should be, if I should be able to stay in the church or not. And the verdict came back that I would be basically stripped of all of my authority and all of my abilities. And I was asked to remove my temple garments, which I had mm. still maintained for some weird reason, looking back, I don't know why. And I was asked to remove those, which was painful for me at the time. And he said to me that I was breaking one of God's most severe laws, which is the law of chastity, meaning that you have to remain pure and clean sexually until you are married in the temple to someone of the opposite sex. And I looked at him and I said, one, and this was before marriage was legal, mind you, in the United States. Yeah, and I looked yeah. at him yeah, gay marriage. And I said, I am going to be married to a man. And when that happens, I will be legally married, which means I will not be breaking the law of chastity. Mm -hmm. And that way I can be back in the church. And I'll never forget the moment is when he looked at me, he said, you may be legally married in the laws of the land, but in the laws of God, you will always be breaking the law of chastity. And that's when I just said, you are over. You're done. <laughs> yeah. All of it. All of it. You are all done. I'm not doing this anymore. And from that day on, I've never stepped foot back into a Mormon church. Wow. And so that was what, like eight years ago? 
probably more like seven. Okay. But yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, that was it. That was the end of my journey. And that, that, that moment I went home, I took off my garments, I actually burned all of them <laughs> and I was done. I was totally, completely, absolutely done. And, and confidently at this point, right? Confidently, like confident yeah. walking away. Yeah. Because I realized at that moment that this person who I loved, admired and respected, who looked at me and said that I will always basically saying to me, you're always going to be less than in the eyes of God. Yeah. And God's, God's never going to love you. And at that point I said, if that's the God that I'm trying to get accepted into, then I don't want anything to do with it. Wow. That's super powerful. Because that is so not who I am. Yeah. That's incredible. And that was it. That was the moment. And I've never looked back. And uh, I mean, my siblings still invite me to like their kids things like baptisms or baby blessings or whatever. And I don't go because it's not, I won't, I will not participate or step foot into an organization that directly opposes me in my marriage. Yeah. Which like you said, it like kind of rocked your parents' relationship with you for a while after everything kind of came to an head. So like in the last seven years, what has it been like kind of rebuilding bonds and dynamics between your family? Me coming out now, looking back, um, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So when I was in the thick of it, it was, I thought, oh, I'm just going to be another one of those gays that lost everything and lost their parents, lost their family. And now I'm completely on my own, which is why a lot of gays, I think, dive into drugs and alcohol because they do lose that, which I did. And it's yeah. very easy to fill those voids with drugs, alcohol, and sex. Yeah. But I'm way too prideful and I have such a hard head that I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Yeah. So I didn't. And eventually my parents came around and they sought a lot of help. Okay. They went to therapy. They went to therapy, which I really appreciate. And they did that. Like that wasn't pressure for you asking them to go. They did that. But that also came from pressure from my dad's brother. My At the same-ish time, my cousin came out as well. Okay. She, she came out as um, lesbian just a little bit before I did. And then her partner came out as transgender and was going through a transformation. And so that process was kind of something that my dad and his brother, my uncle were really relying on each other for trying to understand. And my uncle was like leaps and bounds ahead of my dad. And so kept giving my dad references and referrals and books Mm. to read. And, and that I'm so thankful for. Yeah. I'm so thankful my dad had somebody that he would listen to, number one, but who my dad valued enough to take his advice and really come to learn. And so my dad had to humble himself and he had to learn to love me and accept yeah. me and say, look, this is my son. And if I'm going to have a relationship with him, then I'm, I've got I've to pull my head out of my butt, essentially. But it's still rocky. I mean, my parents are still very active. The church very much runs their life. Mm-hmm. And for as long as they pay tithing, I will never be able to forgive them. And I know that's heavy to say. For paying tithing or just for like for for any of it? No, for all of it. For the Mm -hmm. way they raised me, for making me feel like I was not normal, for creating an an environment in our house where I felt so guilty that I could not be who I knew I was. And I know that it's because they were trying to do their best and they truly believe in this concept of eternity. But for as long as they contribute to this organization, I will never forgive them for that. Yeah. If they walked away tomorrow, like what do you think would be your relationship? Do you think that it would change or do you think that it would separate you guys farther? It would absolutely change, but we have a great relationship, but it'd become even better. Yeah. Which fast forward to now, like you're happily married with your husband, who is not the original boyfriend. No. He's someone new that you have found love with, created a relationship with, bought a house with, created this life with. And your parents at this point, like meeting your husband has been very welcoming, approving and accepting with like bringing you guys into the family. Yeah, but that's an interesting word that you use though of approving because- do they love him? Yes, absolutely. Do they wish that he was a girl? Also, absolutely. Yeah. And that's where it's hard because how can you truly love someone or something or the idea of something? How can you truly love and accept 
while you're still holding a knife behind your back. Yeah. Because in their eyes, in the eternal perspective, Derek and I won't last forever. Right. And in their eyes, I'm lost. Yeah. And, and in their eyes, I won't be with my family for forever in, in, in the heavens. Yeah. And they continue to pay 10% of their income to this organization that preaches that and teaches that and is actively destructive to me and my community. So how can they be accepting while doing those things and believing those things? Yeah. Which like the first thought I have is I, I get asked this a lot with my clients and we, I continuously have this conversation because in my private practice, like I have a lot of members of the LGBTQ plus community and I have even more so a lot of people being in Utah who have faith transitions or religious trauma coming from, I mean, primarily the LDS community because that's the active, you know, primary religion here. But right. one of the questions that I feel like comes up so much for so many people is most reactions, especially from parents it, that, that they get, if you're an, a member of like the gay community is like, I love you and I accept you for who you are, but I don't accept the choices that you're making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so a lot of people's questions are like, how, how do my parents love me, but don't approve of who I am? Like, how do those go coexist? How, how does that, how, how do we have a family? knowing that like that dichotomy and it's hard, right? Because like answering it outside of the religion is a very different answer than answering it. What's supposed to be in the religion. Mm -hmm. But for people like you who have been part of the belief system, part of the Mormon religion, part of this lifestyle for so long, how, how do you, right? Like, how do your parents look at you, love you, accept you, but doesn't really fully accept you that like, it has to be very hard and it has to be heartbreaking and really like unfulfilling. Right. Like a lot of people that I talk to about this, it's like, I love my mom because she's my mom, but I can't love her and I can't respect her for knowing like, I'm never going to be worthy. I'm never going to be good enough in your eyes. Like that is something I think for any child is heartbreaking to know that you are living a life that your parents are never, ever going to approve of, never, ever give you, you know, their quote unquote blessing with. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly it. And, and I like the word that you use of dichotomy because it totally is. In fact, one day I asked my dad, I looked him right in the eye and I said, how can you tell me that you love me and still be part of this organization? And he said to me, he said, I don't have an answer for that. He said, but I know that I have you in this box and I have my beliefs and my religion in this box Mm. and I keep them separate. And I say, that is not a life fulfilling. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is that now that I look, and I mean, now that I'm in this age where I'm able to think logically, my parents are going through and have gone through in the last few years, what I went through my entire life. Like as far as a faith transition? No, not necessarily that, but trying to understand Hmm. that they have this love for me and they have this love for my husband, but that it is contradictory to what they believe. Yeah. And so in a little bit and giving it some perspective, they are going through what I went through my whole life. Obviously not to such extreme because they have each other. I mean, my parents have been married for over 40 years. But there are moments when things happen that my parents take a step back. The biggest one being a few years ago when the LDS church announced that children of same-sex couples can't get baptized And that was a huge moment for my parents where they took a massive step back and they stopped going to church for a little bit. And I was kind of like, oh my gosh, this is the moment. (laughs) (laughs) It has come that they have finally realized that this church is not all about love. Yeah. Um, And yet they kind of resolved that and they figured it out. And then they went, they've gone back to church and they still go to church, but I don't know. It's hard. I mean, like, we lived with them for almost a year when we moved to Colorado because our, our house was being built. And that was honestly one of the best things that's ever happened to me in my life because we bonded with my parents. I have had a better relationship with my parents in the last, I don't know, year and a half than I ever have. I mean, we, a huge reason we moved to Colorado is to be by them because they're not getting younger and they don't have family here. And so we wanted to be here and be close and, and almost take care of them. But an interesting point that we're talking about my parents is that my dad told me a couple of years after I came out is he looked me in the eye and he said, you know, I really love you. And I said, well, I love you too, dad. And he said, you know, he said, I've never been able to tell you that before. 
Mm. He said, I don't know if I, he's like, I don't know if that's just my pride or, or it's just, he said, I don't know if it's the manly thing. That's what he called it. It's just not the manly thing to say. I love you. But he said, he said, but I love you. And, and now he tells me that all the time. I mean, we talk constantly, you know, they're our neighbors. (laughs) So, yeah. And then when we're on the phone, you know, it's, I love you. Bye. And I mean, we're even going on a trip with them next month for a week. And so we're doing these things, but it's still hard because I know what their core beliefs are. Yeah. Do like being around your family and getting close to them, like for example, going on vacation, do you feel like, is there any sense of overwhelming shame that you carry when you guys are with them or when you, you and your husband are like publicly together, whether that's holding hands or kissing or whatever that way, like, do you still carry a sense of shame? Not really just shame. No, no. But just like, even like the shame, just like being gay around your parents, like you said, knowing that they have a different belief system. Um, yes, but that's something I've, I've had since day one. And I don't know if that's just, I mean, I'm, it's interesting because I'm actually studying right now about, um, like, even though I am gay, fully gay. And if anyone asks me, yes, absolutely. This is my husband. This is our family. You're all welcome here. We, I mean, yeah. crying out loud, we have a pride flag in our front yard, you know, but there's still this idea of, homophobia Mm -hmm. that's ingrained in me even now at 31 years old that I have a hard time holding my husband's hand walking down main street. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know if it's because I'm just waiting for that hate crime one day. And I I mean, nothing would kill me more than to have someone hate crime. My husband. I mean, I don't care. People can say whatever they want to me. I really don't. It doesn't impact me at all. But yeah. Is that there's just this ingrained internal homophobia in within me. And yet I have accepted myself fully and I feel yeah. like I am an ally in my community. Yeah. But it's still hard, but it's not religious guilt. Yeah. Does that make sense? Which I think it's like, is that, does that come from also the fact like our generation, right. Is kind of like the first generation to where really like being part of this community, being part of the gay community is like accepted. And it's something that we actually can talk about. Like, you know, sometimes I wonder if like your parent generation are still part of like the older generations to where it's really not looked upon. It wasn't talked about. It was frowned upon. There was so much shame where like, I also wonder if now society, like as the up and coming generations, things are changing. This is a conversation now being had people coming out. I mean, it happens daily. And the interesting part, and I see this often in my work, like, especially with the teenagers I work with, right. Is I usually, when I, like, I would say at least four out of five times, if I have four, four out of five teenagers come in, usually their parents are like, ah, I think it's a phase. Mm. And the reaction I always give is, you know what? A, like, that's not your decision to make. And B, even though sexuality is more open and fluid and talked about, it's something that I tell them, like, if, if they want to be gay today and lesbian tomorrow, cool, let them go on this journey. Because a big part of sexuality, kind of as you explained, like dating heterosexually, like, however, it's part of building who you are and figuring that out and, and being confident, right? Like, if you never get the chance to kiss a girl and you're questioning your sexuality, how do you really know if you're lesbian or how do you really know if you're straight? And I think that the dynamics and the, and the, the social acceptable view of the gay community is changing. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, you know, like, I think many people still of our generation and probably some younger, like there's still that shame of who is going to have that hate crime yeah. or, you know, who is going to make fun of you or make those comments. And those are really like valid fears that are still happening. But I do like, wouldn't you agree that it's still, I think that it's changing. Oh, slowly, absolutely. but slowly. I mean, I can't even imagine today, like the the high school dynamic today and hearing like what my nieces and nephews, what their lives and social circles are like. I'm like, that would have been the dream for me yeah. <laughs> in high yeah. school. Like I never had that. Like there was one publicly out person in my entire high school and he was so bullied. Oh yeah. And that, I mean, and that's in Colorado. I mean, I mean we have we have the first openly gay governor in the union. Mm, yeah. And yet it's still like not even, I mean, I graduated in 2009. I mean, that's how it was. And that wasn't that long ago. So yeah, things are absolutely changing. You're right. And it is drastically changing and for the good and for the yeah. better. And it's just creating these more holistic environments for students that I just absolutely praise. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I have teenagers that come into the office all the time and they talk about how like, you know, a female, female asked each other to prom. And I'm like, Oh, I, like I went to a very East side school in Utah where I don't think there was any openly gay person. Mm. Like I, you know, I think like we had, I think two African-American males that graduated with us. And so like the school I went to, we didn't talk about gays. We didn't talk about different cultures or races. Like we were predominantly white. And so for Utah, especially like we have one of the highest gay populations in the nation, Mm -hmm. but yet it's like, it's like there's two separate kind of societies in Utah. And And I think that that's changing. You see it more frequently. Our pride gets bigger and better every year. So it is changing, but it's still heartbreaking for everybody going through it. Yeah. But what's cool though, there's this quote. So one of my favorite plays that I've ever read in my life is called Facing East. And it's by a playwright called Carol Lynn Pearson. And she is a very, or was, I don't know if she still is. Point is, is that she was a very devout uh, member of the LDS faith and she's from California. And she wrote this play about this missionary who came home and ended up committing suicide. And it's a play about um, his parents going to his gravesite and his partners there. And it's the whole play is just about their, their interaction. But um, she says in the play that she says, about she's talking about a tree and she says to the tree she says it says oh i love you tree you're so beautiful and you're so majestic and i love you but that thing you do about springtime and then talking about the tree blossoming Mm -hmm. it's like i hate that i don't want you to do that but that's who the tree is and then now circling back there's this there's this show called prayers for bobby that if if anyone listening to this needs to watch prayers for bobby because it is phenomenal about this mother's paradigm shift when it comes to loving her child and understanding her um, faith. But she says at the very end of the play, and this is based on a true story. And she says, as you echo your amens, always remember a child is listening. Mm. So as you take these two things from these two very powerful religious women and you combine them together. And I think about in my youth and what you were just saying about the pride and things changing and evolving in, in even Utah, that as those things happen, that there is a child listening yeah, and there's a child watching and there's a gay 12 year old Tyson who's so scared to accept who he is and understand that sees that and says, I can be loved yeah, and I can be valued and I can belong and I'm worthy. I love that. I'm worthy of belonging and I am a tree and I am going to blossom yeah, and I am going to be beautiful. You couldn't summarize it any better. So I congratulate that. And I congratulate the people of Salt Lake City specifically (laughs) for creating that welcoming environment because that's where I understood who I was. I love that. Okay, two last questions. First one being, out of all those little 12-year-old Tysons that are listening, you know, people questioning in their religion and out who are questioning their sexuality, really struggling, those that know that they're part of this community and yet have come out or not told their family what would you tell them? You belong. And I want to hug all of you. And I want to bring you into my home and I want to feed you dinner. And I want to have a conversation and tell you that you absolutely belong and that we need you. And that the road seems daunting and it seems overwhelming and it seems absolutely intimidating, but we need you and you are valued and we appreciate you and you are special. I love that. I think so many people need to hear that. I think that so many people feel alone when they go through this or they have these thoughts and, you know, that they're alone with their journal, figuring out who the hell they are. Mm-hmm. And so I think that needs to be preached more. I think that people need to treat people with that and make people feel worthy, right? The whole point of this podcast is for that. Yeah. And that you don't have to be alone. You're, the thing is, is like, you're not alone. Right. That's where I think like we need to normalize it. You're not alone in this. And like people listen, people can talk. We just have to talk about it. And this is a taboo topic that I get that we don't talk about period. And people have to go on their own journeys. But the sad thing is like people will listen. You just have to be the first one forthcoming talking. And that there's an entire community willing to embrace you and help you and walk you through every step. Yeah. But that's the thing that that is that is the thing is that you 
but trying to understand who you are religiously and who you are in, in not, not even just sexually, but in your own identity, right? That religion wants to make you feel like you're alone and that this is not normal. Yeah. But that is so a lie and that is yeah. so wrong. And that is the biggest biggest lie that they can tell you is that you are alone yeah. because they want to make you feel lonely. And then while you're lonely, they want to tell you that that's Satan that's making you feel that way. Yeah. But it's not. Yeah. You're never going to be good enough. And you are. Yeah. Absolutely. You are good enough. You're perfect. Just the way you are. True. And what the hell is normal, right? Do we even have that? Do we even know what that is? (laughs) Define it. Someone define it, please. Right. (laughs) Okay, final question. What would you say to all the parents out there listening to this that either know that their kids are struggling with this or that they know it and they've rejected those kids? You need to listen harder and you need to love more fiercely. What I mean by that is we so often turn off our ears and open our mouths because we feel like what we have to say is more important But remember that there is nothing in this world more important than a child to be loved. Nothing. Because our children truly are our future. And we leave a legacy with those that come after us. And so think about what legacy you're leaving. And think about what does love actually mean to you? And then I want you to stop and I want you to pause and I want you to write down your responses before you give them. And then I want you to evaluate them. And then I want you to take those responses and I want you to throw them in the trash because they don't matter. And I want you to open your ears and I want you to listen. And the only response that you have after listening is to love. That's it. Love that. I love that. You're amazing. I hope you know that. I feel like your story, the perfect, like, this is exactly why I wanted to bring you on. I feel like you summarize things so well and your words hit so deep for so many people and you're relatable. And I think that this story of yours is very vulnerable, but it's going to touch so many people's hearts. So I cannot thank you enough for sharing your story and being part of this. My genuine pleasure. Of all the pain that I've ever experienced in my whole life, I've always said this, if my story will ever help even just one person, then all of the pain and suffering and loneliness that I have ever felt is all worth it. Amen. Right? <laughs> I mean, amen. That's the theme of your podcast, this, this, this episode. <laughs> so yes, Not really. amen to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I appreciate you. And I appreciate I, you too. Thank you for joining us. And is there anything else that you need? Final words. No famous Tyson quote. Just let your Going freak flag fly. That's what I say. Let <laughs> I your freak it. flag fly. Yep. <laughs> Classic Tyson words. <laughs> And I just want to say again that this story that you just shared is not uncommon and it doesn't just happen for gay males. It happens for a lot of people who are struggling with their religion and in many different aspects of the LGBTQ plus community. I felt so strongly about sharing this story because I do believe this is going to impact many other people, both who are struggling in their religion or their sexuality, and it gives so much insight to hopefully family members that are struggling with kids or siblings who have left the church or who has come out as a member of the LGBTQ community. So in my final words, I would just like to thank you again, Tyson, for taking the time to do this for me and for the listeners. I appreciate it more than you know. And to thank you to all my listeners. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this. And I hope that if this impacted you, if you related to this, if there's anyone that came to mind as you listen to this, please share this podcast. Um, I think it's important for us to share this message and for those of us that are struggling with our religion or the sexuality, that it's important to know we have allies and that we all have similar stories. So share it with others that you think may be of impact of this as well. Um, I also have included 
some resources in the details of this podcast below. There are links to our local Pride Center here in Utah, where if you don't know already, uh, the Pride Center has great meetings, support groups, and some options for therapists. They also have a lot of other resources that they work with here in Utah community across the valley, across the state. And then I also have included a link to Psychology Today, which is a website you can use to look up if you are struggling to find a therapist. You can search for different therapists based off gender, preferences, specialties, insurance, and it's a really great website to use. Um, and as always, my social media handle, which you can find me on Instagram, at WorthyWithRonda. And until next time, thank you so much for listening.